let us first pray that he would bless it to us. Our Father, thank you for the great blessing of your word, that it is our daily bread and your very revelation of yourself to us. Help us to understand what your word teaches us through the illumination of your Holy Spirit. Convict us of our sin, remind us of the great salvation from our sin that you have provided to us, and work in us by your Spirit so that we may serve you in gratefulness for this great salvation. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive what you have spoken to us in your perfect word. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So our passage tonight, this evening, will be Psalm 53. So please turn there in your Bibles so that you may follow along. If you open your Bible to around the middle, there's a good chance you'll end up in the Psalms. Or if you have one of the Pew Bibles, it should be on page 603 of, of many of those. And we'll begin to consider our passage by reading it through, and let us pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. And so as we begin to consider our passage today, I think we have to recognize that sometimes when we come to a passage like Psalm 53, We come to it with an us-versus-them mentality, thinking that this, this psalm, Psalm 53, couldn't be about us. This is about the unbeliever. This is about the atheist. This, this stuff isn't true of me as, as a Christian. However, although this passage does have much to say about the unbeliever and the atheist, we would be... Uh, not looking at all of the points that this passage makes, if that's all we emphasize. And therefore, as we consider our passage today, we will consider it in three main points. What this passage has to say about the atheist, what it has to say about the believer, and lastly, what it has to say about the Savior. And as we go through these main points, and as we consider this passage this evening, will recognize that in the midst of depravity and adversity, God's salvation of his people will come out of Zion. And so let us 
uh, begin to consider this passage by looking at what this passage has to say about the atheist. Now, uh, definition of terms is in order here. What do I mean when I say atheist? Uh, When it comes to uh, David's day, uh, David, the the writer of this psalm, uh, what we see as atheists today, those who publicly proclaim that that they don't believe in any god, was uh, almost non-existent in David's day. Uh, Most people uh, believed in uh, many gods. Uh, Almost all people were religious and had some sort of belief in a god or many gods most of the time. And so when I say atheist, I'm not just talking about the modern-day atheist, but I'm talking about anyone who does not believe in Yahweh alone as the only true God. And so this would include the pagan polytheist, and it would even include the professing believer who does not have true faith in Christ. But what does this passage has to say, have to say about these, these people, this, this group of people? First off, David begins by saying that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. What is so foolish about such a belief? You know, when we look at the wisdom of the world and the foolishness and, and what the world considers foolish, Oftentimes, we as believers, for believing in God and for believing in Christ alone for salvation, they see us as the fools. They see us as the unlearned. And they look to those who don't believe in God, and they say, those are the ones that are wise. Those are the ones who are not naive. Those are the smart ones. But this is not what this passage is talking about. This is not talking about the wisdom or the folly of the world. This is talking about the wisdom of God. And we can look to the book of Proverbs, this this book that's full of wisdom, for an understanding of of what what characterizes the wisdom of God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Therefore, those who say that there is no God can't even begin with wisdom. They haven't even begun. It is the uttermost folly, according to the wisdom of God, to deny God's existence. And therefore, what is this unbelief, what is this uh, refusal of God's existence lead to? Well, David says, they are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. This unbelief follows to, uh, what, what follows this unbelief is abominable iniquity. And this is, this is not to be surprising to us. We can think of uh, the first of the Ten Commandments, You shall have no other God before me. Or we can think of the greatest commandment, according to Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. The atheist, the unbeliever, is most certainly denying and breaking these commandments. The first of the ten and the greatest commandment. So it's no wonder that they go on to do abominable iniquity. That they don't do any good. They can't even start with doing good. 
because they've sinned from the beginning, from the first of the Ten Commandments, from the greatest commandment. If they transgress these, it's no wonder that they go on to continue in their sinfulness. But this is not just David's judgment of these people. David goes on in in the psalm to start in verse 2, talking about God's perspective. This is not just David saying it, but rather God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And what does he find? They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, when David says that God looks down from heaven to see something, this isn't denying God's omniscience. This isn't denying that God does not already know whether people are are sinful or whether they're good. Rather, this is language that we get throughout Scripture. This is accommodated language And here God is being portrayed as an earthly judge who goes to see, is there anyone who's upright? Is there anyone who's just? And he finds that there are none. There are none who do good. There are none who understand and seek after God. And this is very similar to other times in Scripture where we get God either coming down from heaven or looking down from heaven. We can think of the Tower of Babel, or we can think of the, the time of Noah. All of these times, it's, it's almost always the case that what God finds when he comes down or looks down from heaven, it's not good. And this, is, uh, this passage uh, shows that well. This is, the, this is the case in this passage as well. God looks down and he sees that there are none who understand, none who seek after God. They've all fallen away, they've become corrupt, and none of them do good. And therefore, uh, David goes on and, and speaks of, of more of God's judgment, saying in verse 4, Have those who work evil no knowledge? who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. Now you may think when, when hearing that or reading through that, this is very gruesome language. They eat up my people as they eat bread. What is David talking about here? What is this judgment that God is bringing upon these people? Well, we have a parallel passage in Micah 3, 1 through 3, that may help us to understand what this eating up of God's people means. And in Micah 3, 1 through 3, the prophet Micah is prophesying against the rulers of Israel who are uh, ruling with selfish motives. And Micah says, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You hate the good and love the evil. Who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. Who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them. Now this is speaking about uh, rulers of God's people who are selfish. That they're meant to be the shepherds of God's people. They're meant to be feeding God's people. But instead, what are they doing? They're feeding on God's people. 
They're not feeding God's people, but rather they're leading for their own selfish and personal gain. And this could be the case of, of those that, uh, that maybe in, in some of our churches who are, are leading out of selfish motives. And so this would be the person who professes faith in Christ uh, but does not actually believe, but rather is, is, is leading in order, for, in order to bring selfish gain to themselves. But also, this eating up my people as they eat bread can just talk generally about the suffering that believers receive from unbelievers. So we can think of the persecuted church throughout the world, where there are ministers who are put in chains or even put to death for preaching the gospel. We can think of places where it is illegal to be a Christian. This is persecution that the world receives for being Christians from from unbelievers. We can even think of what it's like to be a believer in America, where often we're considered foolish to believe in God, or bigots for believing in only one God. Some of us have often have also even lost friends and family due to the convictions that we have of God's word. But what comes on these unbelievers who bring these persecutions on God's people? Well, David goes on in verse 5 to say, There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame. For God has rejected them. What does David mean by uh, being in great terror where there is no terror? It means that these unbelievers are terrified even when there's nothing to be feared. We can think of uh, other uh, parallel passages that, that state similar things. Proverbs 28.1, for example, says that the wicked flee when no one pursues. Or Leviticus 26.36, the sound of a driven leaf shall put the wicked to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They don't have anyone to relieve their anxieties or fears. It's all on them. They don't have God to call upon to calm their fears. And therefore, they live their lives continually in fear. They have no security. And therefore, even in times when they have really nothing to fear in in that given moment, they're still afraid. They're still trying to keep themselves out of harm's way. And they have no one else to rely on to keep them out out of this anxiety and fear. And then David says, God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. This scattering of bones is something that is uh, not normal to our context. We don't understand uh, what this could be talking about. But in David's day, it was considered good, right, and honorable to be buried with your ancestors. So, to be buried with your fathers that came before you. And so this scattering of bones is to show a great shame that this could never happen to them because God scatters their bones. 
Who's going to collect all these bones that are all over, the, all over the earth so that they can all come to rest in their ancestors' graves? And so this is a great shame that comes upon them that God scatters their bones. It's just another way to say that God surely puts to shame those who have caused these great atrocities to his people. These unbelievers who brought great adversity on the believers will be sorted out by God. For just as they reject him, God has rejected them. But at this point, it would be very easy to move on to verse 6 and say, okay, we've got through verses 1 through 5. That's talking about the unbeliever. Let's go on to the Savior. However, verses 1 through 5 have much to say about believers as well. It would be easy to stop here, but this would not do the text justice. Therefore, we will move on to our second point and what this passage has to say about the believer. What does it have to say about us who believe in Christ, who have put our faith in him? Well, first off, we have to think of where this passage is quoted in the New Testament, if, we're, if we want to think of what this has to say about Christians. In the New Testament, Paul quotes this passage in Romans 3, verses 9 through 12. And Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And this, this category, these categories that Paul uses of Jews and Greeks is just another way of saying all people, ever since Adam, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, all people are born into sin. Without Christ, all of this applied to us. None of us did good, not even one. This applied to us before Christ. And some of you may have come to Christ later in your life, and this may be especially true, and, and especially, uh, uh, you can especially remember what it was like, what your life was like before Christ. That you did not seek to, to please him, but rather you seek only to please yourself. And so we would be wise to remember the circumstances surrounding our salvation. We have no boast to bring over and against the unbeliever, for we were in the same plight as them, and we needed the same salvation that they need. Ever since Adam, all of these condemnations in Psalm 53 were applied to us before the grace of Christ came to us. But not only that, but we can also think of the failings that we have even as believers today. That if we were to look, that if we were to trust in our works even today, they would not justify us. Thinking of verse 1, what is, uh, David starts out by saying that the fool says in his heart there is no God. Well, does that ever apply to believers? 
come on, I believe in God. I believe in Christ. I, I, do I always act as if God exists? Are there times in my life where I live as a practical atheist? Are there times when I neglect prayer or I neglect the reading of God's word and even just intellectual assent that God is with me? I can certainly tell you that this is the case for me, that this has happened uh, to me in, in my life. There are times when we don't seek God in everything that we do and thus show that we are often lacking in wisdom and understanding. And then even in those times, we don't always come to God, the fount of wisdom. Beyond that, beyond living at times as if God does not exist, we also show by our lives that some amount of corruption still remains in us. None of us, after coming to Christ, were in that moment perfected such that we never sinned again. We have not lived perfectly since coming to Christ. There may be times in our lives as believers that we may live in selfishness for a season regarding our wants and needs above our brothers and sisters in Christ. It may not be that we want to be as as stern on ourselves by saying that we eat up God's people as they eat bread, but there are definitely times where we consider ourselves above God's people where we serve for selfish motives. And even beyond then, beyond that, there are times when we fear, and we know as Christians we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to be anxious about. But there are times when we are in terror where there is nothing to be afraid of. And even in those times, we don't always come before God in prayer, that we try to figure it out ourselves. And we don't have our fears quieted or our distresses relieved because we fail to come before the one who can relieve our distress. And so all of this to say that even as believers today, if we were to rely on our works, we would not measure up to God's standard. We certainly are able to do good by the work of the Spirit in us, but this good is not able to justify us. Therefore, we must still believe that it is only Christ's work that justifies us. If it depended on ours, we would not be saved. But how exactly has God saved us? We want to remember that. We want to remember how God has saved us and why it is that we are saved even though as believers today, we still don't live perfectly. And this is what we'll get to in our uh, last point now, what this passage has to say about the Savior. First off, we we need to understand what what is their salvation needed for. Verse 6 says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. But what kind of salvation is needed? If we look at the context of this passage, we may think, that really the only salvation that's needed is salvation from our enemies. And the salvation that Israel needed is only salvation from their enemies. And the believer does receive help from God, and God puts his enemies to shame. We see that in uh, what we saw in verse 5, that there they are in great terror where there is no terror. God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you, 
God puts them to shame for he's rejected them. Now this is often very difficult for us as believers to see in our lives. We see unbelievers prosper while believers are are ridiculed and even persecuted. And again, we are seen as foolish while the unbelievers are seen as learned and wise. However, what what verse 5 is speaking about when when it talks about God putting them to shame, this is, again, just as it wasn't talking about worldly wisdom before, it's not talking about worldly shame here. We are not to judge by the world's standards. We are to judge by God's standards. We as Christians, as believers, will not be put to shame for our worth, value, and honor is found in Christ. He endured our shame on the cross and came out most high and lifted up and most glorious. And therefore, in our identification with Christ, in our union with him, we are given honor, not shame. But what honor is there for the wicked? They're deprived of true fellowship with other people and with God. They worry greatly about the affairs of this world, and they daily work to maintain their dignity and their honor. They have no one to calm their fears and distress. And overall, that last part of verse 5, God has rejected them. They are rejected by God. This is a great shame. But for the believer, the believer is accepted by God. This is our honor. Now, Israel and us, we do need salvation from our enemies. But there is a much greater need. And this is something that goes throughout the Old Testament that that becomes clear that there's an overarching and common problem in the Old Testament that the the people of God can chalk up all of their problems to the root problem of sin that needs to be dealt with. Whenever there are problems in Israel, we can always look to the problem of sin in the Old Testament. Thus, they need the same salvation that we needed. They needed salvation from their sins. And therefore, where can this salvation come from? This is what David ends with. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This salvation must come from Zion. Zion is different than Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where the law was given. But Mount but Mount Zion is in Jerusalem, the mountain of God's holy hill, where grace comes from. And therefore, when it says that salvation would come out of Zion, it's to say that it's coming from God's holy hill, namely, it's coming from God himself. He will send salvation for his people, because it can come from from nowhere else. But where and by what means... Is God, going, is God going to send salvation for his people? We can think of uh, Heidelberg Catechism, questions 13 and 15. 13, can it come from ourselves? Can this salvation come from ourselves? Certainly not. 
Actually, we increase our debt every day. The truth is, salvation cannot come from those who need to be saved. It must come from someone who doesn't need to be saved. You know, Scripture talks about us being dead in our sins before Christ. How can someone who is dead bring themselves to life? Or how can someone who is dead bring someone else who is dead to life? It must be someone who's alive to resurrect the person who's dead. And so what does Heidelberg 15 say? What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? One who is true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also true God. It must come from someone who verses 1 through 5 don't apply to. It can't come from someone who doesn't constantly acknowledge God. It can't come from someone who does abominable iniquity. It must come from someone who is true and righteous man, but also one is truly God. This is Christ. Christ is the one whom God sends for his people from Mount Zion to save them. He is the one who consistently acknowledged God in his earthly ministry and who fulfilled all righteousness. He is the only one who could save a sinner. He comes out of Zion with salvation for his people. And as David says, God restores the fortunes of his people. Therefore, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. Think of all the wonderful spiritual blessings that we receive from Christ because of his salvation of us. We can think of how we are going to receive glorified bodies that no longer will we be subject to sickness or to sadness. There will be no more crying or mourning. Think of how we will have eternal life with our Savior in heaven. We have all of these blessings and more. Our fortunes, no matter what they were before we came to Christ, are abundantly overflowing because of the spiritual grace that we have been given in Christ. And therefore, if there are those here tonight who have not put their faith in Christ, who do not believe in God, I implore you to accept wisdom in acknowledging God and trusting in Christ. Christ is the only one who can save you from your sins. Salvation has indeed come from Zion. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And for those of us tonight who have already put our trust in Christ, recognize and remember the great salvation that has been afforded to you by Christ's perfect life and sacrificial death. Trust not in your works, but only in the finished work of your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Trust in the one who came out of Zion, who lived a perfect life, acknowledging God and upholding his commands, and eventually suffering in our place, obtaining salvation for us. Let us always remember this great salvation and let us remember it 
and, and live grateful lives for what God has done for us. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you again for the great blessing of your word. I pray that what we heard out of your word today would take up root in our hearts by your spirit. We recognize that we have not acknowledged you as we ought, whether by intellectual assent or by our actions. But we praise you that it was in this place of hopelessness that you provided salvation for us in your Son, Christ Jesus. Help us to rely only on his perfect life and sacrificial death for salvation from our sins. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.